This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network, the African-American Studies channel. My name is Brittany Edmonds, and I'm very happy to be with Dr. Autumn Womack, who's here to discuss her new book, The Matter of Black Living, The Aesthetic Experiment of Racial Data, 1880 to 1930. Thank you for being here today, Dr. Womack. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start just by talking about this title of yours. It's it's wonderfully dense and informative. Um, there's like just so many phrases in it that I'm curious about. And so I wonder if you could tell us about first the matter of black living, both that noun matter and then that sort of gerund that ends it and rounds it off living. I'm curious about that. I'm curious in the subtitle about aesthetic experiment, what you mean by that. And then finally, I wonder if you could tell us about just both of those things in relationship to Um, the period you're studying, 1880 to 1930. Yeah, Um, it's funny because I am notoriously really bad with titles. I just got off the phone with a friend who's helping me with a title for something else. Um, So I will say that the original title for this book was supposed to be Undisciplining Data, um, which I bring up as kind of a key concept and phrase in the introduction. Um, But the title wasn't quite working and I, it felt a little bit too um, pejorative almost um, and like it was going to be veering too close into um, quantitative studies and, and kind of questions of disciplinarity and, and field questions, which the book was not doing. Um, so from there, I had to reroute and really think about kind of what the stakes um, of the book are and were both for the turn of the 20th century, which is really my center of gravity, but also in our contemporary moment, because one of the things that I was really trying to think through in the book was this long question of how we might think about our present differently if we had a different kind of archive um, from which we could ground the questions really about um, Black life and Black vitality, which I think are at the forefront of a lot of questions of Black studies, but also Black politics and Black social movements. So with that in mind, um, I really wanted to foreground this question of the animacy and the vitality of Black life, 
um, which for me is what was really at stake for Black thinkers and Black intellectuals at the turn of the 20th century who were trying to produce new kinds of information, new kinds of knowledge, and ultimately what I describe in the book as new kinds of data practices and processes. Um, and so I didn't want to, you know, just talk about life, which to me is something that that is still very still and quantifiable. But what I was really after was this um, this vibrancy, this incalculability um, that really is at the heart of, of of Black social practices and Black creative practices. And that's where the Black living came in, right? I wanted to really think about the ongoingness, the aliveness, um, kind of the movement, the set of practices and processes that really determine what we think of as Blackness. Um, I wasn't trying to pun on like Black Lives Matter, <laughs> which my editor was like, I love it. This is like really contemporary. And I was like, that's not quite what I was trying to do. But I was brainstorming a bunch of titles with friends. Um, and I really, I wanted to both think about kind of matter in terms of um, materiality um, and the relationship between materiality and different kinds of data regimes and data um, systems and knowledge, kinds of, of knowledge producing um, apparatuses. Um, but I also really, you know, quite simply for the turn of the 20th century thinkers that I'm I'm writing about and thinking with, I mean, one of the questions that I think they were really after is like, how do we kind of show the value of Black living? Not just that like Black life is something that we should be looking at or that it has, that it has kind of value in and of itself, right? Um, but like, how do we actually kind of create a different kind of, of system of knowledge um, and valuation. Um, so that's where the first part of the paper came from. It's a very long answer. Um, the aesthetic experiment of racial data, <laughs> who can say? Um, you know, I, I will say that what I was thinking about and what I, what I try to think through in the book is a really capacious definition of data. Um, that was at work and operative at the turn of the 20th century, really before data became calcified in the way that we come to understand it now, um, which is either, I think, in terms of like big data or in terms of algorithm or even kind of later in the or in the 20th century, kind of the, the 1930s, 1940s, when it became much more in vogue as a term, where it really met kind of a set of numbers um, or figures or, or, or it denoted quantification and um, and things like that. But at the turn of the 20th century, I think it was it was much more I argue that it was much more loose. Um, it was much more flexible. Um, it was really about informa informational. Um, and so I wanted to think about um, data as an experimental process, right? Something that hadn't yet been codified yet. And in that, that open-endedness, there was some potentiality, um, some kind of experimentation that could happen, could generate kind of new, new kinds of um, epistemologies, new kinds of ultimately argue aesthetic practices. So that's where the whole the whole title. And then the the dates, 1880 to 1930. Um, I also am trying to think about a different periodization of turn of the 20th century literature, right? That that is organized around these or according to a broader set of questions about how data and black life interface, which I argue were really at the forefront of every Black thinker's mind at, during this period in particular. All right, great. Well, thank you for that. I mean, given what you've just said about the title and, and some of the sort of 
broad themes that you're engaging, some of the stakes of the project, some of the revisions you're trying to make vis-a-vis our standing under our extant understandings of, of black life at the turn of the century. I wonder what you can say about what all of that means for how you went back into the archive, right? Because to me, that is a, that, that is, you know, that is a site of very traditional data gathering. And so I wonder what that means for, for a book where you're maybe trying to upset some of the, the usual ways that we approach information uh, record, you know, et cetera. Yeah, um, no, thank you for that. Um, and I think you're right that one of the things, or right to notice that one of the things that the book is is really thinking through, or kind of, I think working through methodologically, or at least I try to, was um, a different kind of archival practice um, that really unearths a different, a different kind of data of Black life and Black living. Um, so, the project really was born from the archive. Um, I've long been kind of trained and obsessed with, with archival research and archival processes. And way back when I was in graduate school, um, it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> yeah, it's now, way back. <laughs> and now, it's like, now it's like 15 years or 16 yeah, years. Like, okay. it's, it's not short. It's, it's almost 20. Um, it's not like, well, it's like my first year of graduate school also. So that was a long time ago. Um, anyways. The point of the story is, is that I was really, um, I became really interested in the way that a lot of, um, really I was originally working in the antebellum period, interestingly, but a lot of these antebellum Black writers, um, I found just through doing archival research in newspapers and things like that, um, were ha- some of the writers that we think of as being the most formally and aesthetically experimental were also deeply invested in um what we think of now as the empirical sciences, right? So I was really interested in Martin Delaney in that way and how his he pivoted between a career in science and a commitment to um, what we think of as the natural sciences and then this kind of experimental writing that we see in Blake. And Britt Russert talks about this beautifully in Fugitive Science. Um, so I was really, I, I kind of figured out or was interested in that slippage between the experimental and the empirical through kind of doing this archival research. Um, then when I turned my focus to the turn of the 20th century, mainly because it was just kind of such a chaotic period and there was so much happening. And one of the things that really excited me is that this was also a moment when there's a really active interest on the part of Black intellectuals to archive and to create an archive. So if we think of the turn, we think of the antebellum period as a period where kind of the archive of Black life is, is usually thought of in terms of lack or dearth, right? Like we, we only can find the record of Black life in something like the death toll, right? In something like plantation ledgers, right? Um, or in the cracks between official records. In the postbellum period, there's really kind of an overabundance of archives, right? Um, from the personal to the institutional to the official, like the governmental, right? To all of these kind of private, private philanthropic organizations that were coming up to, you know, newspapers, the census was really gearing up in a different way and having a different kind of category of questions that made it a different kind of official documentation. So there was just, there's all of these archives um, that I was really interested in and that, that were kind of became dizzying as I worked through the book. Um, with that in mind, right, with both the, on the one hand, kind of this three-pronged approach, on the one hand, my investment in this pivot between the experimental and the aesthetic, 
the overabundance, we might call it, of the archival record at the turn of the 20th century, both you know, individual, official, unofficial, right? All those different kinds of archives that are coming up and new kind of technologies of archiving um, that were emerging on the part of the state in particular. Um, with those two things in mind, and then the third thing that um, kind of kind of solidified my approach, or I should say, kind of determined my approach to thinking about the archive, was this really open question that we think of now, or in the thought of Ben as the Negro problem, which is like, how do we how do we understand free Black life, right? Um, I feel like I lost my train of thought. Well, you're, you're talking, you're talking to me about the archive and about all these changes that happened at the turn of the century, the turn of the 20th century. And you gave us three sort of categories that were anchoring some of the questions you asked as you went back through it. And those categories were the experimental versus the empirical, also thinking about the aesthetic in there, the overabundance of archives following the uh, antebellum period, and then finally sort of seizing on the Negro problem as sort of the backdrop against which all of that activity is happening. Yeah. Okay, right. So with the Negro problem as kind of the backdrop against which all of this acti activity is happening, they're part of the part of the kind of production or part of the investment in producing an archive of, of official archive of black life through kind of these bureaucratic measures was an effort to really kind of solve the problem of black freedom, right? Um, which is to solve the Negro problem. So looking at sociological studies, looking at census data, um, so there's all there's this kind of like overabundance of, of data or records about black life. But then I was also interested in these other kinds of archives that exist that are also producing, perhaps unintentionally, another kind of record or archive or data of black living. And these are the, the records that I think black black folks both actively produce um, and also unintentionally in a lot of ways. So, for example, um, in the second chapter of the book, I really think about photography as a as a data producing regime, and we might also think of it as a really important archive of, of black life. And I look at lynching photography in particular, but then there's also the archive that I look at um, emerged around this family who survived a lynching. And there's a, talk about overabundance. There's a, kind of an overabundance of of um, archival records that emerged around this family who survived a lynching. Um, and so I say that, you know, I'm looking at both the photographs of this family that were produced as an official archive, but also these kind of ephemeral performances um, that were recorded in the press um, that the family was ultimately compelled to um, perform on stage as part of an anti-lynching um, review. Um, and so I look at kind of these archives that we might not think of as producing data. So like the performative, um, the, uh, I guess it's just the performative. Brittany, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm trailing off. No, you're great. I mean, I, I find this fascinating. Um, and you, you, you're pivoting to my next question. Um, so you, you said, you know, many, there are both sort of official and unofficial archives, right? And many of the official archives were being produced, or excuse me, the, the official data making was, was in service of solving the, the problem of black freedom. And you had a wonderful phrase in your book that I liked quite a bit where you said like, uh, you know, like, the Negro problem was a methodological problem for the social sciences during this period. And I love thinking about that. Um, and so my next question is kind of in that, 
in that vein. Um, in your book, you're engaging sort of three different kind of modes, right? Modes of maybe data gathering, the social survey, photography, film. And we're going to talk about those more in depth, um, including the, the family um, that you just spoke of. But I'm curious, too, about those three things in relationship to the multiple sort of scholarly disciplines that you're moving sort of across, in and out of. Um, and those, for the most part, are anthropology, sociology, and then sort of history as a kind of burgeoning burgeoning field that's being institutionalized in various kinds of ways during this moment. And so I'm curious about how those emergent technologies are related to disciplinary practices and their engagement with black life. And I don't know if, I don't know if that's like a too complicated question, if it's uninterested, we can move somewhere else. But I was just super curious about that. Like, how do these sort of new technologies relate to these disciplines that don't quite have their feet yet? And how does black yeah. life a part of that, of that story? Yeah. Um, so the first sort of field and form, I guess, that I look at the first pairing is sociology and the social survey. And sociology really kind of comes in and out of focus throughout the book. Anthropology kind of takes center stage in part three of the book. Um, but, you know, until really the 1920s, sociology was still kind of finding its disciplinary and methodological center of gravity. Um, and in the 1880s and in the 1890s, right, especially when there's kind of the emergence of what would then become kind of urban sociology, right, the studying of the city as, as a microcosm of the social, right, but also as kind of an, an incubator or like a... a Right, the the this space from which um, we can kind of study all of social interactions and all of social problems, right? That automatically was kind of a racialized field and racialized landscape. So, you know, sociology and the so-called Negro problem are are from the very beginning always deeply imbricated. Um, and as sociology is really trying to figure out what their methodological toolbox is going to look like, this thing called the social survey emerges and really was kind of exciting and attractive for all kinds of reasons, um, primarily because it was both a method and a practice, right? So social surveyors would, and this was all based on um, Charles Booth, who was a um, kind of a, a social thinker and reformer in London um, in the, the 1880s. Um, he, he really refined this method that was came to me known as a social survey, but in, in, practice, right, you would go and you would interview people door to door and gather information. So like a more robust kind of census. Um, and then in theory, right, as a method, it became really harnessed as a way of perceiving and theorizing social life as an active social force, right? So rather than thinking about the social as um, a calcified organism, right, the social survey was believed to be able to kind of capture the aliveness, capture the the everyday rhythms, right? When people talked about it and really praised it, you know, it would be like, um, we can kind of see the theater of social life, right? We can see the rhythms and the ebbs and the flows of the social, right? There was a way in which this collecting of the voices and the, the everyday information was supposed to create um, kind of social data is what we might think of it or what they called it at the time period. So I was really interested in this technology primarily because as I started thinking about the turn of the 20th century, 
I became fascinated by the way that so many Black intellectuals and writers had their foot in the world of the social survey. So of course, we can think of somebody like Du Bois, who, who did the Philadelphia Negro, right, which is kind of like the penultimate kind of model of a social survey, or, or we might think of as the, the Black social survey. But then, you know, people like um, Richard Wright, people like Charles Johnson, right, people like Ida B. Wells, like everybody was kind of invested in this form. Um, so even as it became this really, um, really violent mode of social control for white reformers and sociologists, there was also something about it that seemed to be really promising, at least in its most aspirational form, right, which was about recording the living of the social that Black intellectuals and writers and creatives really seemed to be drawn to. Um, so that that question of kind of why, right? Why this form that seems to be so invested in disciplining the social, even as or controlling it, like getting the picture of it, right? Why was that then still so attractive to these black intellectuals? That's the thing, that's the question that animated the first chapter um, and really is creating, or it's kind of the juncture between the sociological and the form of the social survey, what I ultimately call in the book, these data producing regimes. Um, that's kind of the nexus of that I look at in the first chapter. Um, and so it was that same kind of question in that that animated my interest in photography and and sociology is a little bit in there, but I think that's also where it's, it's kind of a question of the emerging field of history and how do we kind of historicize racial violence through photography and through lynching photography in particular. Um, and there just as the, the question for, for black uh, intellectuals who were taking up this social survey was, what is a form that can capture, and I know it sounds counterproductive to use that term, but kind of capture Black living, or I should say record Black living, that question's also really at the heart of, I argue, this the relationship between lynching, lynching and photography for many reformers, right? How do we narrate racial violence as something that's ongoing or about living, right? And not just kind of about a calcified set of information, right? Um, in the, the final chapter, I'm thinking about anthropology and film and anthropology is and the 1920s is being deeply invested in retrieving a romanticized past. Um, and then when it comes to, kind of, you know, the Southern Black folk, as it were, um, kind of relegating them to a, a, a temporality or a non-modern temporality and then how do these, how does emergent film technology, which was being used by anthropology at that time period, how are Black intellectuals and creatives like Zora Neale Hurston also trying to reconcile that calcifying, objectifying force of anthropology, the film recording technology, with then her ongoing investment in recording the, the animacy of Black living. So that's kind of the, it's always kind of a triangulation throughout the book, right? Like the technology the discipline, and then this question of how do you communicate and how do you record Black living um, and, and kind of wrestling at that that interplay or that intersection. Yeah, no, all of that is, is really fascinating. And, and I want to move into your chapter specifically, but unfortunately, this this other kind of more abstract question is is just, I don't know, it's tempting me. And so I'm curious about, you know, as you were speaking, I could hear in your description um, that 
initial tension that you describe between the sort of empirical and then these sort of formally innovative thinkers and writers and 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 just sort of doers, we'll say, um, these sort of prominent black people who were engaged with advocating for for other black people. Um, and so I'm curious if I don't know. I'm curious if I'm curious if that ever gets that tension ever gets resolved in any way vis-a-vis data and what, and even that sort of fraught thing that you said, where it's like, how do we record black living? Even that there being an anxiety about that, because you, you, as you also note, that is a, that is a, that is a a site of disciplining for white performers. And so I, I know that's like a jumbled abstract question, but it's just something I was curious about. I mean, still this, the empirical and the innovative, but then also thinking about, how data sort of is data what result like how is that the site where these thinkers are trying to resolve this 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 question yeah i mean i think it's it's a site that's particularly attractive to them and i think it's attractive precisely because it's so open and experimental at this time right um so there's this idea or there's this hope that not that if we produce the right data, things will be better. So not if we just produce a body of correct data, but actually, like, might we have a different methodology or a different praxis that produces produces and allows us to produce and perceive a different kind of data? And right, and that would be kind of a living data. Um, and so I think that that that's the investment, or that's the that's the thing that they're curious about, right? And I think it ultimately, some of many of the folks that I write about are kind of are like, it's it's not it, right? We're going to try it, right? Um, so I think one of the things that I'm also really invested in the book, and this I think might get back into kind of the method and, and the my interest in archives too, is really kind of showing this like ebb and flow of investments in, in data's potentialities at different kind of moment, key moments in figures like Du Bois or Kelly Miller or Zerniel Hurston's careers. So it wasn't like, this is what is going to solve the so-called Negro problem, but like, let's just try it, right? And see what happens. And that's also where kind of the experiment in the title comes in. Like, what happens if we put kind of Black social living in relationship to the social survey, what might happen if we kind of put those two things together? What kind of data might be produced? And sometimes the answer was like, this is not it. <laughs> like there's no, li- there's no body of living data that can emerge from the social survey. But there was a hope that it might be able to do it. And same with photography, right? Like might we be able to tell a different story about lynching as a story of living through the, the meeting of photography and, and a certain kind of narrative about lynching? Let's just see what happens. Um, and so I really am invested in like holding this as an open question. How do we, what does a data of black living look like? And I think when it's an open question, that kind of shifts the whole terms of the conversation. Um, and I think ultimately in our moment now, if we begin from that question, we begin to see a different kind of, um, a different, a different, a different kind of historical narrative that emerges. Yeah, that was that was going to be my next question. Right after this one, I'm going to ask about your first chapter, and we're going to dig into it. But I'm curious about how what all like all of you just said, how that relates to how we understand this period already. You know, because I have my own 
21st century, as I, I studied the 20th century sort of understanding of this period of time, which is not that granular. Um, but it, it sounds a little different than, than what it is you're saying. And so I'm curious about what you're, I'm curious about what this engagement with data, this investment, even if it was provisional, we'll say, um, what that means for our understanding of this period and how it's generally narrated, right? Because I think of this period as one in which, you know, black people were writing like racial melodramas and like trying to convince white people to like stop being mean, you know, and, and, and I, it's a little more complicated than that. But basically it's like, we're trying to increase literacy. We're trying to give black people practical skills and we're trying to get white people to be less mean. Sure. Yes. I, yes. Not, and I think all that was happening. But I also firmly believe that this was a moment of active and really dynamic aesthetic experimentation um, in, a, in a way that was really, I, I would argue, quite unprecedented. Um, so, you know, just as there's all of these uplift novels, which are also kind of experimental in their own way, I would say, um, or kind of doing their own kind of experimental work. Um, and just as there's like, you know, cast your buckets where you are, et cetera, et cetera, right? I mean, there's also like people really trying to figure out, often through creative practices and aesthetic production, kind of how to intervene into these debates about Black freedom, right? Which was an experiment in and of itself. So I was just reading um black reconstruction and there's this moment in the passage about i mean i mean the chapter of out emancipation the chapter is looking forward where du bois is really you know talking quite earnestly about how black freedom was a question that nobody had answers to like it was not something that was anybody ever kind of imagined having to think through seriously and not that you know of course folks many people in the antebellum period were like, okay, we can't have slavery going on forever. But the idea that there would have to somehow be a way of figuring out how blacks and whites would live together under the rubric of freedom was like, that in of itself was kind of a speculative project. Um, so I really think that thinking about these, these writers in the post-reconstruction period, right, kind of after that, the whole infrastructure for how governmentally this might work, black freedom might be, be solved or figured out after that's evaporated it's like a it's a it's an open market it's like let's see what happens like maybe it's um all about kind of reforming the idea of the urban maybe it's about going back and rehabilitating the south maybe it's about the social survey maybe it's we produce this other kind of photographic record that might do something right that might answer some questions so i think really thinking about it as a moment of active experimentation is really interesting and exciting for me. Um, again, like the idea of thinking of the overproduction of archives in and of itself, I think that lends a different kind of texture to this period. Um, and I also really think of this as a moment that is, you know, setting us up for, especially the, the works that I look at, setting us up for what we think of as the exciting realm of, of Black modernism, right? So we normally say, you know, James Weldon Johnson, Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man, kind of marks the beginning of Black modernism. But there are all of these pieces of the puzzle, right, that, that Johnson had to have been engaged with that could not have been, he couldn't have done it without kind of the social survey, the, the novel of the city, um, 
kind of urban reporting, right? So there's all of these kind of these pieces of trying to of, of literary aesthetic social production that are are responding to this chaos of the modern world. Um, and so I think that, you know, my one of the things I hope the book does is it really kind of fractures this idea that, you know, the 1880s, 1890s was like solidly concerned with uplift. Um, I don't think I talk about that at all in my book, um, or maybe just a little bit in one chapter. But that, it, that was just one strand of a really complex um, nexus of questions. Yeah, no, that's really interesting because I will say that period does sit in my mind as a, as a conservative period uh, in terms of what it is Black writers wanted Black writing to do and who it is they imagined as their audiences and also, yeah, the forms they were engaging in and also the people they were who for the most part were putting out books, you know what I mean? So I think about it in all those ways as a, as a kind of conservative period. But, but what you've said is so interesting about it just being a speculative moment. Um, and that to me is, you know, allowing a bunch of other things to rush into my mind, like all the kind of speculative fiction that was being produced uh, at the turn yeah. of the century. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, finally, we're going to turn to your chapters. Okay. <laughs> um, so your first chapter is titled The Social Survey, The Survey Spirit, excuse me, The Survey Spirit. And you've already told us a little bit about, about this first chapter, but I wonder for folks who are maybe still a little fuzzy on what the social survey was, what role it played. I wonder if you could say a bit about that. And then I wonder if you could tell us about the survey spirit. Um, mm -hmm. um, yeah. So the social survey was the predominant mode of gathering social data at the turn of the 20th century. Um, it was transported to the U.S. by um, social workers, burgeoning sociologists, and reformers. Um, primarily working in the North, who were really interested in kind of solving the problem of modern life, right? Um, and really solving the problem, as, or understanding, I should say, what they saw as the problem of the urban landscape, right? And how that was really kind of the place where all of the problems of modernity were coalescing, right? Um, and so this largely led by, by female reformers, you know, they took up the this, this social survey form, um, and they were interested in producing a body of data um, that if we have all this information gathered first person, right, from the people who were studying from their own mouths, right, then we might be able to assess better what the problem is and, and come up with a, a, a program for, um, you know, ameliorating all these social ills. So the social surveys would go out into the social surveyors, I should say, would go out into the community. It was all about um, kind of immersion into the social. So it was about kind of intimacy and proximity to the pro quote unquote problem, right? So let's say that was kind of looking at the quote unquote, you know, ton of slums of, you know, the East Village in New York, right? Like going into these apartment buildings talking to the people who lived there, seeing what their daily lives were like, seeing how many kids they had, seeing how much money they made, right? It was all about reform through proximity. Um, ultimately, then this spanned out to a different kind of like social settlement movement, which is where literally, you know, these white reformers would go in and try to resettle um, the environment by creating these, um, these settlement houses where people would live and learn everyday skills, right? So that's the... Um, 
That's what social surveyors did. And then they produced these really um, capacious and thorough documents that were published as social surveys. Um, so, for example, in Chicago, Whole House, which was a settlement um, house, they had a ton of surveyors who would go out and collect information about the neighborhood. And then they, they published Whole House maps and papers, which was like all of their findings. Du Bois did the same with the Philadelphia Negro, published it as the Philadelphia Negro. And there were tons of these. The Pittsburgh survey was really um, the largest one. And I think that was five volumes and that came out in 1905. Um, so this was kind of the predominant mode. Um, and then it became, it was taken up by sociologists, University, University of Chicago, University of Penn, they would all teach classes on social surveying. We still have classes on, on surveying and sociology and anthropology, right? Um, so that's what it was. Um, but it really, as I mentioned before, there was something about it that was so attractive to reformers, right? It was a different kind of approach to solving the social, quote unquote, ills through a kind of close approximation to the problem. But at the very same time, there was something about the way that it promised to um, record the vitality and the, the openness of the social that was really, really attractive to Black thinkers. Right. And so this is one of the things that I argue in the first chapter that consistently drew Du Bois to the social survey over the course of his career. Um, but it wasn't just Du Bois. Right. Like all of these, um, you know, tons of, of African-American intellectuals and also white white reformers were just a kind of really invested in this idea that there was a different kind of um the social survey kind of double as a different kind of perceptual apparatus. They also talked, they often talked about it in these kind of technological terms as um, like a cross between a telescope and a microscope. Um, it was the thing that would allow the social to emerge like a pageant that like danced before your eyes, where there was something about the living, the aliveness of it that was, that was really attractive. And that, that's what I describe as the, the survey spirit. Um, and that's taken from a speech where somebody was advocating for the, the promises of the survey. And um, so I take this idea of the survey spirit as being kind of this thing, um, both concrete and abstract, that attracted Black thinkers to this form. Um, and the survey spirit I draw out in the first chapter is really, really long, I would say that. Uh, it's like a, a book in and of itself. So I trace the survey spirit from its emergence out of the social survey movement in the 1890s, but also something that takes shape. Um, and shapes fiction, um, criticism by Kelly Miller, fiction by uh, the writer Sutton Griggs, and ultimately kind of the, the thinking of, of um, Elaine Locke in the 1920s. So the first chapter also does the work of kind of moving across the whole time span that the book, the book thinks about. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Yeah, I mean, you kind of answered this already, but I wonder if you want to say a bit more about the role of the, the social survey and the survey spirit um, and shaping, you know, the genre that you take up sort of most uh, specifically is is the social document fiction. So I wonder if you want to say more about that or if you want us to move on to, to thinking about chapter two 
Um, so I was curious about that. And then I was also curious about whether or not, you know, Du Bois does have pride of place in across the first couple of chapters in your book. And I wonder, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder if there are any surprises in how he sort of fits into the story that you're telling. I mean, for you, for readers. So those are kind of two questions. One, if you could tell us a bit about um, social document fiction and then two about did Du Bois surprise you at all and how he fits into this moment, this, this, the story that you're telling in your book? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'll start with social document fiction, um, which interestingly was the title of my dissertation. So I never could quite <laughs> that. Titles um, on titles. Yeah. Title. I know this is, this is what the podcast should be about. Oh, the titles and all kind of stack up. Um, so um, social document fiction. Okay. So Social document fiction is this term that Elaine Locke uses to describe a body of, describing that in the late 1920s, right? So he's, Elaine Locke is you know, thinking about um, in this, this essay that is published, it's, it's some kind of survey, um, kind of what's happening in, in the late 1920s, what's the state of the Negro problem, right? And what's, we, we've, we've moved past kind of the, the 1925 survey graphic, um, Harlem Echo of the New Negro, so let's take the pulse. Where are things? So this is like 1928, I believe the essay is. And so he's doing this kind of long genealogy of, of Black literature. And when it comes to the turn of the 20th century, he lands on this term social document fiction to describe what he sees as a body of literature that, while useful as sociology, kind of fails totally as aesthetic production, right? Um, and for him, W.B. Du Bois's 1911 novel, The Quest of the Silver Fleece, which I happen to love, is right kind of representative of this right like if this is pure kind of like ideology this is just you know didactic and it's there's nothing aesthetic about it um we've this is the low point of black literary creative production for him but it's like it, it is good as kind of it is good as propaganda and it's good as kind of sociology right it does something there so i return to that term and maybe i reclaim it and i'm like you know for all of the ways that Quest of the Silver Fleece, which is Du Bois's first published novel, is didactic, is more about the economy than anything else, it also is weirdly experimental and fantastical. And it's actually a moment from the book, from that book is what I opened my book with. Um, and so it is kind of temporal, temporally incongruous. It, one of the protagonists is uh, this, this young girl, Zora, who is dealing in magic conjured seeds. Her uh, aunt is a conjure woman. There's a haunted or, or kind of a conjured swamp, right? There's magic cotton seed. There's a whole different kind of um, critique and imagination of kind of capitalism and speculation. Like there's all this other really kind of wild stuff that's happening in the book. Um, and I find it quite, quite aesthetically experimental. Um, so I say like this kind of body of literature that's toggling between the sociological the didactic and what I describe as the formally and aesthetically experimental. It's not just Puzzle Silver Fleets is not the only book that fits into this category. I also say that, or I show how um, Sutton Griggs' 1899 novel, Imperium and Imperio, might also be classified in this way. So thinking about Imperium and Imperio as social document fiction, right, that loops back to the social survey because interestingly, Kelly Miller, who's a central figure also in the book, and he was um, kind of a, a co-thinker 
and collaborator with Du Bois and also a mathematician, so also deeply invested in the empirical. When he was critiquing the racial data, the foundation of racial data um, as racist at the turn of the 20th century, he says, you know, he suggests that the book that did what sociological studies couldn't do was Sutton Griggs's Imperium and Imperial. And I know this is a convoluted story. This is why the chapter is so long. So for, as I kind of set it up, social document fiction actually has quite a bit of value when we think of it as something that these Black thinkers at the turn of the 20th century embraced and relied upon as not just an alternative to sociology and statistical data, but as its own kind of sociology and statistical data, right, that was producing a different kind of knowledge. Um, and so Quest of the Silver Fleece gives us that, and Imperium and Imperial, I argue, also becomes um, both an articulation of this other kind of data. And also, I kind of the, the main takeaway is that it's the um, kind of the fullest expression of what we think of as the survey spirit. That was a very roundabout answer, but the, chapter, the chapters have a lot of like constellated moving parts, um, which no, I, I think it was is, great. is what yeah. made it fun. Yeah. Well, I wonder if you want to say anything about Du Bois before we move to your to your second chapter. Um, it's all right if not. Yeah. I mean, you know. No, I mean, Du Bois, like, as I was writing the book, it became really impossible for me not to foreground Du Bois. I mean, he's such a central figure in Black studies and Black literary studies right now, but he also is just, he had his hands in everything at the turn of the 20th century. Um and he also kind of was both producing and theorizing simultaneously. So there was there was not really a way that I could avoid him. Um, but what I did, what was surprising was the ways that he, the places he popped up, right? Um, so in the first chapter, certainly like I begin with him, he, he pops up through the Philadelphia Negro as somebody who was invested in the social survey. But then he kind of pops up again in this debate he has with Kelly Miller um, that then allows me to think about his relationship to somebody like Sutton Grigg. And those two are often not thought of together. Sutton Griggs is thought of as this, um, he's not quite canonized now in our current moment, but kind of almost there, but kind of this fringe black novelist, writer, turned sound recording um, preacher in the 1920s. Um, him and Du Bois are often not thought of in relationship to each other, um, aside from just kind of being part of this postpartum moment, right? And again, in the second chapter, which I'm, when I'm talking about this, um, writing about this family who survived a lynching, you know, I didn't expect him to come up at the end of the chapter as somebody who was also wrestling with the relationship between photography and lynching, right? We normally think of that as such a, a, a well-known kind of solid story for him. Um, and he pops up again in the coda in a curious way. So there were these kind of these these moments, and I tried to show how he was always kind of there, often in unexpected ways. I wanted to both foreground him, but also kind of keep him in the background. And also, I, I it was fun to kind of constellate all of these figures, many of which are really well known, but kind of put them in relationship to each other around different kinds of questions or different kinds of events or different kinds of books, like Kelly Miller, Sutton Briggs, Elaine Locke, and W. B. Du Bois are all kind of circulating around this question of the utility of the social survey and its relationship to aesthetic production. And so that seemed to be something that was a little different and a little more interesting. Um, but I couldn't get away from him. It was a rabbit hole that I didn't want to go down. And 
I got, I, I went down it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you do mention, you mentioned that in the book, but you know, you did, I mean, you've done a, an excellent job. I mean, just to what you were saying about constellating all these different figures and helping us know them differently and in a fuller context than we might be used to sort of seeing their names circulate. I mean, I think that that, that is definitely an achievement of, of your book. And so with that being said, maybe it's time to move on to your second chapter, which is uh, titled Photography, Looking Out. And in it, you, you think through lynching photographs and anti-lynching activism. And you also say that, you know, you're trying, one of your aims is to revise how we think about photography and lynching and the, the sort of extant discourses around those two things. And so I wonder if you can tell us a bit about your understanding of racial data in this context and about some of the interventions you're trying to make in this longstanding discourse. Yeah. Um, and it really is a longstanding discourse. Like there's, I remember I was telling somebody like I'm writing this chapter on lynching photography and they were like, please don't. Yeah. It's like every black visual studies book. So it really, I mean, but that was one of the things that was really interesting to me. Like there is this really well rehearsed discourse. I mean, there's so much interesting and important scholarship, but there is a way that we think of, or we've come to think of the relationship between lynching and photography as just kind of a seamless fit, right? Like the two emerged, necessarily emerged in conjunction and alongside each other, right? Like lynching thrived because of photography and photography thrived because of lynching, right? Um, and so the other part of that, right, the well-worn story, I think, um, an important story is that photography often also was an important data source around lynching, right? And here we can think of this, the, anti -lyn the lynching photographs that were repurposed as anti-lynching photographs by the NAACP, but also the way that lynching photographs are used in Ida B. Wells's work, right? Like it's part of a data regime for Ida B. Wells alongside statistics, lynching photographs, right? Offer proof that these lynchings happened, right? And they become part of this enumerative system, right? That, that shows, right? That lynching happened, but also on the other side, it's important um, they become crucial in kind of the devaluation of black life, which in the very same way that that lynching statistics were used to kind of devalue black life, right? Um, and and then um, allow or encourage um, more lynching. So um, that's there. When I was reading, and so you'll see also the way the book is like so intertwined. When I was reading Sutton Griggs's Imperium and Imperio, which is the subject of the first chapter, there's this family at the end of the book they're fictionalized as the bakers who survive a lynching, right? It's really easy to miss passage. Um, as it turns out, this family um, was was real, right? There was in 1898, there was a lynching in, um, in South Carolina and uh, two members of the family were killed and uh, five children and the, the matriarch Lavinia Baker survived. Um, and so this family really became the centerpiece of pro-lynching and anti-lynching activism between 18, 1898 and 1899. And there's an entire archive that, that emerges around this family and their story from court records to photographs to newspaper articles. There's a film. Um, and so what interested me here is, you know, how does this family who survived a lynching, right, actually the definition of living evidence as it were right they were used as evidence of lynching 
for by pro and anti-lynching um, activists, right? We might say in 1899, how does this family who survived a lynching throw into crisis this relationship between lynching and photography that we've come to rely upon, which is always predicated on the idea that lynching ends in death, right? The thing that is being proven, the thing that is being evidenced is the disposability and the death, right, of, of Black people. But here we have a family who survived a lynching, and ultimately, they throw this entire epistemology into crisis. I argue their very bodies, their very being. And they also invite us to think through a different kind of question that animated anti-lynching activists, which was, how do you produce an archive of lynching that is actually about living, right? Um, and I think this is a really important recalibration, right? So often we think of anti-lynching discourse, its subject being death. Right. But its subject was really living. Right. Like, how do we keep alive? Right. Um, as much as how do we account for the dead? Um, it's also really a question of aliveness um, and living. And this poses a really a, a methodological, conceptual, epistemological, aesthetic challenge for practitioners of photography at this time period, since photography was all about capture and arrest. Um, and so through the bakers, kind of I chart all of these different ways, kind of experiments with how you animate photography and evidence by way of these living bodies, it en ends up quite um, quite problematic to say the least. Um, but this is what I was really trying to think through in the second chapter by way of the bakers. Um, and then um, in the final part of the chapter, I, I show how Du Bois was also kind of interested in this question of how do you produce an archive of lynching that's also about the living as he was using photographs of lynching in the crisis in the beginning in, in 1911. Yeah, no, that's that's fascinating. I wonder if you want to say a bit about that. You call it a, a new visual praxis. I wonder if you want to say a bit about sort of looking out um, in yeah. relationship to what you've just said. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things I'm really trying to think through in this chapter is um, how photographs of racial violence um, might, by way of the Bakers can be in the case study, might also double as new theories for, for Black visuality um, and really what we might think of as Black looking. Um, and so I do a really sustained meditation on and reading of one of the photographs of the Baker families that was produced as part of this kind of effort to produce an archive of of, of living lynching data um, in 1899. And so five photographic portraits of the family were produced and they were incorporated into this anti-lynching um, performance that I that I unravel and unfurl in the second chapter. Um, and so I read this photograph and I read one of the women's um, kind of gestures that move across the photograph um, as articulating a theory of, of Black visual practice that is not so much about reversing the gaze or getting um, or kind of evading the gaze either. So I think there's ways that we think about kind of opacity or resistance, right? But a way of looking that's also about um, kind of always anticipating, right, um, violence, but also not having that be a thing that, um, or not having that be a state that makes you um, hide or recoil, right? Um, it's a way of kind of always living with the awareness that one is in proximity to death, 
the way of looking at scenes of social living as also kind of articulating or always being haunted by by racial violence. Um, but it's also about kind of, you know, a different kind of way of seeing survival, not as endurance, right, but as kind of that which always lives on and lives through the body and these different kinds of gestures. And so the gesture that I look at is this little smirk or a smile. Um, so I was really interested in kind of thinking about how this 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 challenge of producing a, a living archive of lynching through photography also ended up producing a different kind of way of seeing seeing racial violence. Yeah, no, that's great. All right, well, like turning to your to your final chapter, which is entitled uh, "Film Overexposure." Um, and there you kind of take up Zora Neale Hurston's film practice. I wonder if you could tell us what's significant about Hurston's films, maybe why they've been a bit overlooked, um, and also how they're contributing to this conversation, this sort of scholarship you're engaging or you're writing about about racial data. Yeah, thank you. Um, so Hurston's films, I've always been obsessed, <laughs> obsessed with. Um, so between 1928 and 1930, she recorded at least 32 minutes of footage of everyday uh, Southern Black life for the most part. Um, and she recorded the footage under the direction of her patron, Charlotte Osgood Mason, who, you know, Hurston was under contract with her at this time period, as so many writers in the 1920s were. So Mason was giving her money, kind of funding all of her projects. And the idea was that Mason would then get all of the material that Hurston gathered. So Mason was also kind of a collector of Black folk life, as so many people, white people in the 1920s were. Um, so Hurston goes to the South and she records all of this footage. Um, we don't really hear about it ever again um, in the course of Hurston's lifetime, which is one of the reasons why it gets overlooked. So in the footage, we have scenes of children playing games. We have a church baptism. We have a church picnic. We have scenes from a turpentine camp. Um, many of the things that Hurston would then go on to write about more in her fiction and her nonfiction. But so there are these little like short snippets and it's non-narrative film, which is the other important thing to note. So Hurston never mentioned these films and she was kind of a meticulous and steady uh, letter writer to all of her friends. She never really mentioned the film. She never writes about it in her autobiography. She makes a couple passing references, but she never kind of talked about this moment where she was was deeply invested in, in, in film recording, even though she goes on to kind of want to work for other studios and try to, tries to adapt some of her writing into film. She never writes about this moment. Um, the films get kind of re-enter academic discourse in the 1990s, and they're immediately enveloped in um, scholarship and writing on Hurston's relationship to anthropology and ethnography, right? So the films are immediately kind of adopted as part of her ethnographic uh, research and, and another kind of anthropological uh, method that she was using. So film was kind of emerging at this time period as a, a, a tool um, for anthropologists that they, they would use. Um, and we could think of Margaret Mead, who she worked with, who was always kind of beginning to record these films. So um, one of the reasons that they're overlooked is because Hurston never wrote about them. The second reason that they're often overlooked is because they immediately got kind of explained away, right? This is evidence of her deep investment in ethnography and anthropology. She kind of, she, she moved away from that, but this is kind of evidence of that moment in her life. Um, I was really invested in them because from the beginning, I was like, these films 
are not immediately reading to me, and maybe because I'm not an anthropologist, as ethnographic or purely anthropological. Like that's too easy um, explaining away, I thought. Um, and what was particularly interesting to me is that on the films, we see Hurston really experimenting with what film technology can capture when it comes to what she always described as the pulse of Southern black life. So she would often, you know, always kind of describe black folk life as, as not something of the past, but something that's always evolving. She would use the phrase still in the making, right? It's constantly moving. Um, and so one of the things that we see borne out on this, this footage is Hurston really trying to, to reconcile the technology of the camera with the pulse and the rhythm of a black Southern life. So just like the folks who were using the social survey were trying to reconcile the survey's disciplinary functions with the rhythm of black social life and seeing what might happen. And just like, you know, in the second chapter, um, folks were taking up photography and, and, and putting it together with survivors of lynching to see what might happen. Right. The same thing was happening with Hurston with film and Southern black life. Um, and so I use the the term overexposure in this chapter to name both one of the things that happens on the film as Hurston's trying to record Southern black life. The conditions of the, the South like produce a lot of overexposed film. But then it also becomes a metaphor in this chapter for what happens when when black life and film encounter each other. Um, and kind of produce this, this, what I describe as kind of this, this glaring blindness that emerges from getting too much information and actually getting nothing at all that you think you're getting. So it's this paradox that I think Hurston's always been playing around with and becomes kind of the rubric for her aesthetic practice where she's constantly giving us what we think is kind of the key to Black life, but usually we're left with kind of what did we actually just see? What did we actually just read? I think we get it in characteristics. We get it certainly in how it feels to be colored me, uh, which I, which she was writing as she was recording. So I, in this chapter, I'm really thinking about how film was an experimental technology for her, something she played around with. And then it also provided her with a framework, a rubric, um, an analytic that then takes shape and directs her writing during this time period. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. I mean, uh, I guess here I'm, I'm I'm interested. I wonder if you could say something because this 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 last example seems so different from the first two, um, in that it's it's hard to instrumentalize in any kind of way. And so I I, I wonder if you could say something in relationship to that, with regard like, to sort of how you've described Zora Neale Hurston. This this sort of non-narrative films that you know what I mean. They just seem. They don't seem like they're instrumental in the same ways that the other two sort of sites of racial data are. And so I just wonder if you wanted to say a bit about about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So I think that, you know, when we think about the, the way in which she was invited to use film was certainly instrumental, right? Like, get me, like, get me information, get me nuggets, like, get me evidence. Like, I want to see, like, what this this living past essentially looks like, right? Um, and she was that that ethos or that direction was coming from this not so long by that time period, but at least a couple of decades, right? At least two decades of um, 
ethnographic motion picture and filmmaking, right? Um, which was all about quantifying, measuring, um, making sense of valuing and devaluing racialized others' bodies, right, through film, right, or through motion picture. Um, and so we can think of kind of, you know, early ethnographic photographs where we see kind of indigenous and native bodies kind of against a grid where they're being measured, they're being proportioned, right? We even think of kind of world's fairs and exhibitions that were happening at this time period and the films that were taken there, which were really all about kind of calcifying um, and capturing racialized others and, and producing evidence of a, a past that was disappearing, but also was still kind of here, which is its own kind of temporal tangle. Um, so that's the, that, that's the, the history out of which the mandate that Hurston was be was tasked with was coming. Right. Um, and there's also a way that, you know, so she's working within that tradition on the one hand, but, you know, film itself, I think it's really important to think of it as a, a data regime, right? Something that produces information, especially at this time period and, and, um, and kind of quantifies life in particular ways um, or, or values it. Maybe it's more of a value system. Um, so, I mean, that's the, that's the rhythm out of which Hurston was, was working and moving. And when you see the films, there's, it's, they are moving in, in the ethnographic tradition, right? I don't want to say that like these have been totally been mis, mis, mis um, categorized, right? Like we see her doing things that look like ethnographic um Film. Like she's doing kind of forward looking and then profile headshots of the kids. Um, France Boas, who was her mentor, was very into kind of play and gesture. And so there's a lot of play and there's a lot of gesture. Um, but what happens is that it gets off the rails. <laughs> like when she's trying to record these games, it's like a see, it becomes pure chaos in the best sense of the word. Like you're not quite sure what the, the, uh, the subject of the, the film is. There'll be like five kids playing games and then somebody's running off in the distance and then. So there's the idea that you can ever get any kind of actionable information from these films is totally thrown into crisis, especially during those moments of overexposure, where it's like what you think you're seeing is suddenly interrupted by the failure of the technology itself, right? That the technology actually can't comport with, in this sense, black skin, dark skin, I should say, bright sunlight. The film just wasn't wasn't capable of recording that end movement. Um, so that's kind of, you know, what the, the chapter is thinking of. And, and, you know, each of the chapters really is thinking about kind of the traditions out of which these data regimes, I call them, or data forms emerge, right? The social survey's instrumental history is, is really evident, right? Um, it was all about controlling the social environment by producing data and gathering data. And I think photography example is pretty clear too. There's a way that Photographs capture, control, contain, arrest, like in that, and and produce evidence. Um, and the film is is emerging, and from the tradition of of disciplinary, you know, arenas like anthropology. Yeah, fair enough. Well, I wonder just to close if you want to tell us a bit about, you know, your coda takes up the the contemporary moment, and so I wonder if you have anything that you you'd like to say about sort of the data regimes of now where I feel like, you know, black life is still being 
um, captured, recorded, plumbed um, mm -hmm. for all kinds of data. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because when I started writing this book, I probably, I think the moment has changed, um, certainly, and especially in, in relationship to how data and Black life are being brought together. And there's so much exciting work happening about kind of critical algorithm work. And um, and I think my colleague, Ruha Benjamin, is doing kind of amazing work around, around this. Um, but, you know, when I started really thinking about the book, and I, I think it's still present, there still was this commitment to the idea that if we just produce the data, it will solve the problem, right? Like if we have the right data, the problem is we don't have the right data. And I, I began to notice this like way back in the Obama, it feels like so long ago, the Obama <laughs> administration, it was really like, you know, I remember, you know, I think it was around Trayvon Martin's death. He was like, we have to get information around this. We have to figure out what happened. We have to get the data and that will like, lead to some kind of justice, right? Um, and, you know, even kind of there was the, all of the viral footage of, of, of anti-Black violence often perpetrated by um, the state, right? There was this idea that if we, if we see it, we have the evidence, then something will change. And this, I mean, even in the summer of 2020, when I was writing the quota, and I talk about this a little bit in the in in that last closing moment. I remember, you know, listening to the radio, driving around the pandemic. So I would just drive a lot, and everybody was like, "We have the data. We have the information around the George Floyd murder. This will do things. Like we have it. We've got it. Everyone's seen it." And so there is still this kind of commitment to having the right data will solve problems. And one of the things that I'm really trying to do in the book is say, like, okay, what if we foreground this other history of data and black life, where the two are constantly being put in relationship to each other, um, but where they, it's not an easy seamless fit, right? So the idea that, and this is like really what I take up in the first chapter through the social survey, the idea that statistics and the social survey and black living will ever seamlessly fit, like that explodes, it always falls in upon itself. Same with photography and lynching, right? The idea that like, the two will seamlessly meet is actually, it, it's, it's a bit of a myth. Um, so one of the things I really wanted to invite readers to think about is, you know, what's this other history of racial data that's actually about asymmetry, failure, messiness, experimentation, rather than the idea that data and Black life do, do fit together. We can produce a data of Black living. We just don't have haven't done it yet right haven't don't we haven't had the right kind of um formula um so i wonder what happened if we move from a more skeptical asymmetrical um asymmetrical moment and, and I, I play around with that a bit in the quota and think about kind of these moments we can look at the the unease or the disharmony the moments where data doesn't capture what we think it will is actually you know providing us with some the better information yeah. Okay. Well, excellent. Well, thank you. Um, is there anything you want to tell listeners about why they should buy your book? Just to close? <laughs> you know, what, what, what are they going to get when they go out and buy this book? Well, you're going to get a, I think it's, I think it's a fun, I, I maybe haven't described it as such so far. I think it's a really fun interwoven story. Like all of the chapters are actually speaking to each other in a, I think in a really fun way and kind of telling this different, telling this unexpected story about um, 
early data regimes in black life. I think that even though data is in the title, it's actually a book about kind of the failure of data in so many ways. Um, so it's more a book about black living, if anything else. So there's all of these kind of beautiful little stories and little vignettes about performance, about theatricality, about formal creative experimentation. And I think we get a different portrait of Hurston um, in the final final chapter. Um, and I think it also is just kind of a different history of, as you were saying, of, of turn of the century black intellectual and creative life. So anybody who's interested in that, I think we'll, we'll, we'll have fun. I'll also say that because each chapter is, is a little bit longer, you can read them individually. So it's almost like three books in one, which I think is fun. So you can skip around. It's, it's teachable in that way too. That's my pitch. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. It's wonderful.